It was the year 2005. It was in a small town of Oakwood, and justice was swift, and it was unforgiving. Charles, Charlie Davis, was a hard-drinking man who was known for his violent temper. And he had just been sentenced uh, to death for a gruesome murder that had shaken this quiet community to the core. And the evidence against him was damning, and his reputation had sealed his fate. As the days passed, Charlie resigned himself to this impending execution. He knew he deserved it, but yet there was within him just a flicker of regret for the life that he had wasted. The town folk had given in to start calling him the Oakwood Butcher. And that name was resounding within his brain over and over again. And recently, before he had gone to prison, he had seen the movie Green Mile. And the phrase, dead man walking, also was resounding in his head over and over. Dead man! Dead man walking! Dead man! Dead man walking! Dead man walking here. Dead man. We got a dead man walking here. Dead man walking. We got a dead man walking here. For a sake. It's enough. So the night before his execution, as Charlie sat in his dimly lit cell, he had a visitor. A gentleman came in who introduced himself as Benjamin Lawson. He was a wealthy landowner from a nearby town. And Benjamin had read about Charlie's conviction in the newspaper. And there was just something about it that haunted him of the idea of a man being executed for his crimes without having at least a chance at redemption. So he said to Charlie, I have come to make you an offer. Benjamin said, and his voice was steady, it was determined, and he said, I can't change the past, but I can give you a chance at a different future. And Charlie looked at him in a very skeptical way because what could this man do? So Benjamin continued, he said, I have no doubt that you are guilty of the crimes that you've committed, but I believe in second chances. I have arranged for a legal team to reopen your case in the hopes that we can seek clemency on the grounds of rehabilitation and possibly of redemption. So Charlie couldn't believe what he was hearing. He had expected nothing but condemnation from the world. Yet here was a man who was willing to invest time and money in saving him. In the following weeks, Benjamin's legal team worked tirelessly to present evidence of Charlie's remorse and the steps that he had taken during his time in prison. 
They argued that he should be given a chance to atone for his crimes through community service and counseling rather than the death penalty. Now, the town was obviously divided over this. There were some people who believed that Charlie deserved a second chance, but then there were obviously others who said, no, he needs to pay for his crimes with his life. And the tensions were high as they waited to see what the governor would do. In a surprising turn of events, the governor commuted Charlie's death sentence to life in prison with an opportunity for parole somewhere down the road. Charlie could not believe it. He had been given a second chance at life thanks to the kindness and belief in redemption of a stranger. So over the years, Charlie underwent a remarkable transformation. He used his time in prison to help other inmates turn their lives around. He became a mentor and a symbol of hope. When he was eventually paroled, he spent the rest of his life dedicating his time to helping troubled youth so that they could see that there is a second chance in life. And he believed that he owed a debt to a stranger who had seen the possibility of change even in the darkest of circumstances. The Oakwood Butcher was no more. And the phrase, dead man walking, no longer applied to Charlie Davis. Charlie had become a living testament to the power of forgiveness, redemption, and the belief that even the most hardened souls could find a path to a better life when given a second chance. Now, this sounds very much like this is a true story, and it actually, it is not. Actually, AI wrote this story for me. It's amazing <laughs> what artificial intelligence can do when you give it the right parameters. But here's what I want to, and oh, by the way, if you are planning on using AI to write your master's thesis, don't do it, because you will get in trouble. But here's the thing about this. The concepts, the ideas that we hear in here of being a dead man or dead people walking. The offering of forgiveness and redemption and a path to a purpose are evident in our text for tonight as we continue in Ephesians. So we've got through Ephesians 1. We're going to start in Ephesians 2 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 2, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 10. And as I prepared for this sermon, as I was digging into this, I started seeing more and more the depths that the heart of God and the heart that God has for us. And I hope you see that as well and you will get excited because this one of me just want to praise God, want to worship God more and more and more as I was preparing for this and as I was reading through this tonight. So let's take a look at Ephesians 2 starting in verse 1. It says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the 
passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich... Oh, we're going to stop there. Sorry. Sorry. I went a little too far. Um, Now, here's the thing. As a former teacher who taught grammar, obviously, uh, the way this starts is not wise. It's not good grammar because this starts with a conjunction. And we know we're not supposed to start sentences with the word and. Uh, But Paul's writing style, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, his writing style has a lot to be desired. He loves to write in these long run-on sentences, has lots of commas in it, a lot of deep information that you have to pick through and figure out. But the reason he does this is Paul has such a passion to share his heart with people through his letters that he wants to put down everything he can to get people to be impacted by what he's saying. He's not super concerned about how he writes it. But what we are going to find is that this sentence, verse 1, starts with the word and for a reason, because it really is a dependent clause that is going to depend on something that is yet to come. And it points us back to what we just heard in chapter 1. We read everything in chapter 1, and then it says, and now this. All right, so let me review real quick what we heard from chapter 1 from uh, Sam and Isaiah over the past month. Uh, They showed us how Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers of the amazing blessings that we have when we are in Christ, from being adopted as children of God, the guarantee of the inheritance that we share when we are in Christ, also that we have been chosen by God. He tells them how thankful he is for their faith and how much they love one another. And then he reminds them of the great power of God that was displayed in the resurrection of Christ and the power that has placed Christ ruling in the heavenly places for this age and the age to come. So Paul is giving the Ephesian believers these amazing reminders of who they are in Christ, and then he gets to chapter 2 and he says, and, and so what about you Ephesians? What does this have to do with you? What else do I need to remind you of as we continue this letter. And the first thing he wants to remind them of, and us as well, as we are thinking about this, is what our status was before we are in Christ. What was our status before we were saved? And the text here says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The Greek literally here can be translated as you being dead in your sins. It's like an ongoing state of being dead in the sins in which we once walked. And this is where the idea that we had from our opening uh, illustration comes in of being a dead person walking. That eventually, even though when we were in our sin, we are breathing, we are physically alive, There's this perpetual state of being already dead as we are walking around living our lives for ourselves. Spiritually, in this state, there is no real life. We are all born with a sin nature. 
which is inherited from Adam, as verse 2 tells us as well, it is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience that leads all unbelievers in the way of this world to disobedience and rebellion. And this is actually referring to Satan and his followers, which you'll hear more about in chapters 4 and chapter 6 of Ephesians, because we find out that that's who our true enemy is. Our true enemy is this prince of the power of the air that we hear of here. But there are a couple things in these first three verses that we need to unpack. First of all, what does following the course of this world look like? Look at verse 3 again. It is living in the passions of our flesh. It is carrying out the desires of the body and mind. It is by nature being children of wrath like the rest of the world. Following the course of this world is people choosing a life apart from God. And God is not culpable. He is not complicit in humanity's rebellion, even though he knew humanity would fall. Even though he knew we would choose a life of sin, he didn't create it that way. It's not what he desired or wanted. But he does allow or he gives people up to their worldly pursuits. And I think Romans chapter 1 does a phenomenal job of explaining this. If you go to Romans 1 and starting in verse 18, we read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And then if you jump to verse 28, it says the same thing. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a based mind to do what ought not to be done. I don't know if you've ever heard this argument used against uh, Christianity before that goes something like this. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? Now, I've actually heard that a few times from a couple people that are very close to me. And but what we just read really helps us to understand that even though God is holy and just, and he has a wrath because of his holiness and because of his justice, but it's not God that sends anybody to hell. It's people themselves, and it's our sin that sends us to hell. 
and God allows us to pursue that if we want. Um, and apart from God, that's what we do. But you know, the thing is, even though he allows it, his heart breaks because even in people's sin, even in our sin, God loves every single one of us. And he desires a right relationship with every single person. And then what does it mean though to be children of wrath? John 3.36 tells us that whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In Philippians 3, 18 through 19, Paul tells us this, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. And what does the first part of Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is death. And here is what Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers that anyone who is living apart from Christ is already a dead person walking. But if you are in Christ, this is who you once were. For those of you in this room tonight who have accepted Christ for salvation and you are in him, this is who you used to be. It's not who you are anymore. It's who you once were. But I don't know everybody in this room. And there is a possibility that there may be some people in here tonight who have not put their faith in Christ for salvation, that have not, through repentance, accepted the death and the resurrection of Christ as their sole payment for their sin. And what you are doing right now is you are finding yourself, as we read this text, existing in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. Maybe we have some dead people walking in this room tonight. And what I'm hoping is that when we hear what Paul tells the Ephesian believers next, when we hear the hope that we can find through Christ, I hope it impacts you, and I hope it makes you consider how you can come to Christ and may be made alive as well. So remember the, that the first three verses here were a lengthy participial clause that really is dependent now on verses four through seven. So let's pick our text back up and we're going to start and look at verse four, which starts like this, but God, and I need to stop right there. <laughs> we need to take a pause and we need to think about these two words, but God, think about the impact of just those two words. When I think about this, this reminds us that all of creation, all of history, the present, and the future, it's all God's story. God is sovereign over all of this. Even before time began, God had a plan to redeem people for himself, to fix what we have thoroughly messed up. And in every circumstance that we see throughout Scripture, even when we look at what happens around us in our lives, we can always see 
but God in these circumstances. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of hopelessness, even in the midst of our trials as believers, God contrastingly intervenes in beautiful ways. Think about this. When the things happen throughout Scripture and when things happen in our lives, but God, but God rescues, but God protects, but God heals, but God restores. When we're going through things, we might think, God, what are you doing? But God has a purpose in our trials. But God saves. And even when we are being dead in our sins before salvation, we get to verse 4. And we have, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now I'm getting excited because here's what God has done for us. You'll notice that the phrase he started in verse 1, where he said, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he takes that and puts it into verse 5. So this incomplete thought that he had, this dependent clause, Paul has now completed it in verse 5. And we can sum up his complete thought of really all of verse 1 through 10 in this way, that even when we were being dead in our sins, God made us alive. Even when we were being dead in our sins, God made us alive. God is the subject here. And the main verb of this whole discourse is what he has done. He has made us alive. And so there's so much that we want to pull out of this and unpack from this part. And this is where the hope that we have of our salvation comes in. So the first thing I want to explore is what is God's motive? What was his motive for making us alive? And that brings us to our first point that you will have on your handout. And that God's motive for making us alive is mercy and love. God's motive for making us alive is mercy and love. But it's not something that we just read and say, oh, it's his mercy and love. This section is filled with such amazing words to modify these, these nouns of what God has, has for us that it just should get us more and more and more excited and pumped up as we hear this. Because God doesn't just have mercy toward us. It says he is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. And I think Andrew talked about this in one of either his sermons on Sunday morning or third Monday, that mercy is not some disconnected, emotionless concept of just withholding something negative from something that somebody deserves. 
Mercy is really a heart of compassion. Mercy is compassion, a desire and for the well-being and the restoration of somebody. And God is rich in his mercy for us. When God sees us in our state of sin and being dead, what an amazing outpouring of compassion that he has toward us in wanting to restore us and to restore the relationship that he intended for us from the very beginning. And also, it's because of not just of his love. What does it say? It's because of his great love that he has saved us. It's that agape love that we have heard of before. Agape is translated into the Latin as caritas. And the root for this is where we get our word charity. It's where we get our word charity. C.S. Lewis refers to agape love as gift love. Think about that. It's gift love. We don't deserve it. In his book, The Four Loves, he says, in God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. Think about that. Out of God's rich mercy and great love, he has made us alive. And if mercy and love are God's motive, let's take a look at his means of how he has made us alive. And that brings us to our second point for tonight, that God's means for making us alive, it's by grace. It's by grace. It's that undeserved favor that God demonstrates for us through the atoning sacrifice of his son on our behalf. And as we see in verse 5, I love this. Think about this once more. Even, it starts with even when we were dead, he made us alive. Romans 5.8 puts it this way, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. That when we are in the state of rebellion, when I was in a place of saying no to God, Christ still went to the cross. He still took my sin upon himself and paid my penalty, even though my answer to him was no. That is love. And that kind of love should blow our minds. We should be seeing here the depths of God's heart for us through this text tonight. And the power that we read of in chapter one, when we, that last section that Isaiah was talking about, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that has seated him in the heavenlies to rule, it's that same power here we read that raises us together with Christ, making us alive. And it seats us with him in the heavenly places. And although... Although we are not yet physically in the presence of Christ, the verb tense that is used here in this passage in our union with Christ is saying that it is already done. We are already raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. It's that already but not yet tension that we see throughout the New Testament. 
Um, and so, and what hope that gives us, because that means in the end, our eternity with Christ is secure. It's secure. Through all of these powerful reminders that Paul is giving the Ephesian believers, we see God's purpose in making us alive. So let's look at our last section tonight in uh, Ephesians 2. We're going to read verses 7 through 10. I know I read 7 already, but I want to repeat verse 7 first. So this is how this last section goes. It says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In these final verses, I believe that God is giving us three reasons or three purposes for why he has made us alive. And what we are going to find in all three of these is that every single one of them helps us to remember once again that this is all about God. All of these purposes for making us alive point back to him, not to us. And I think that's amazing. So here's the first purpose that God has had. It is to reveal his kindness to all. It's to reveal his kindness to all. Verse 7 tells us that God wants to show or to make known the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to, toward us to all who are to come. What we know about grace already is the means by which he has saved us. But with the description we have here, once again, we see that this is not just simply grace, right? We can see there's incredible passion. There's incredible emotion. There's incredible compassion that is being poured out from God the Father from heaven toward us because it says that his grace is rich. It doesn't just say that his grace is rich. It says that it is immeasurably rich. We cannot even put a price tag on what his grace is for us. It's amazing. The Greek word for grace is charis. And the definition, if you look this up, words that are embodied within the definition of the Greek word for grace are words such as joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. We cannot begin to even comprehend the depths of God's grace for us. John 1.16 tells us, for from his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. It's not just one grace. It is grace upon grace. God's heart is amazing. Remember what C.S. Lewis said about God's agape love, that it is a gift love? We read in verse 8 that our salvation is a gift of God. 
And if we finish what we were reading in Romans 6.23 before, that the wages of sin is death, but what does it say next? The gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's heart. God saves us so that through Christ in us, we might show and reveal his amazing love and grace and kindness to those around us and for those yet to come when they look back and see what our lives were like. God's second purpose that he has in this text is actually our humility. Our humility is God's second purpose in making us alive. Verses 8 and 9 are very famous. I think a lot of people know Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, because we always use it to remind ourselves and others that our salvation is not our own doing. It is not a result of works on our part, so that we could somehow boast of saving ourselves. It is the only one that we should be boasting in is Christ. And we actually read this in other scriptures as well. In 2 Timothy 1.9, we hear this, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And as I read these next couple of verses, I want you to listen to the heart of God in here. Once again, it's just this amazing pouring out of his compassion and love. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I love what Romans eleven six tells us about God's grace and why we cannot boast in ourselves for salvation. It says this, but if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If there was even one thing that we could do to earn our salvation, Christ would not have had to die. We could just all go out and seek what that one thing is, do it, and earn our salvation. But it's not. It is God's amazing immeasurable grace that saves us. And then uh, when we are constantly reminded of this, when we are constantly reminded of God's sovereign plan to save us by his loving grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we know that there's nothing that we can do to earn this, it's a free gift, then by the power of God in our lives, we can live out the purpose that God saves us for. Number one, it's for to show his kindness to others. Number two, so that we remember it's not us. And number three, God's third 
purpose is to activate and empower ministry. It's to activate and empower ministry. Verse 10 is a powerful way for Paul to end this part of Ephesians 2. He's reminding the Ephesian believers here that they are in Christ, and therefore, how should they be living if God has made them alive? Let me read verse 10 again. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So although we know we are not saved by good works, we are definitely saved for good works. And we have this concept of walking here, walking not in our trespasses and sins, but walking in the path that God has purposed for us. Even before time began, God chose us. We heard that in chapter one, correct? And here, at the same time that he chose us, he prepared a path that we ought to be walking in. We do not set our own purpose for our lives. God has set the purpose for us. And I love that because sometimes it can be very confusing to figure out what our purpose in life should be. But when we are in Christ, he has set our purpose for us. Think back to Charlie from our opening uh, illustration. He was a dead man walking. And enter Benjamin Lawson, a man who had some power, who believed that everyone should be afforded a second chance uh, at redemption. And even though he believed Charlie was guilty, he worked hard to bring about a stay of execution for him. And once Charlie got that stay of execution, once he got that second chance, what did he do? It changed his life. Did he leave prison and then go back to murdering people? He did not. He actually used his second chance to impact people for the better. He used every opportunity that he had to pay back the debt that he believed he owed to someone who showed mercy and grace to him. He did not go back to the man that he used to be. And isn't Charlie's story really the story that Paul is saying is the Ephesian believers? That they were once dead in their sin, but now God has made them alive? Isn't this really our story if you are in Christ? Benjamin Lawson, our Benjamin Lawson, is God himself. And he desires our redemption. And he actually has the power to bring it about himself through Christ because of his mercy and love and by his grace. And he has commuted our death penalty. He has made us alive together with Christ. So what do we do with this second chance at life? Real life this time. We are no longer dead. What do we do with it? Do we go back to acting like someone who's dead in their sins, to disobedience? 1 John 3, 6 says this, No one who abides in me, Christ, no one who abides in him, Christ, keeps on sinning. But no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We know we are not going to be perfect yet in this world. We still are going to struggle with sin. But if we are abiding in Christ, 
we should be sinning less and less. And we should be allowing the Holy Spirit's power to work out this sanctification process in our lives so that we actually can walk in the purpose that God has given us. So if you are a believer tonight and you are in Christ, this is my charge for you. If you have been made, al- been made alive in Christ, may you humbly and passionately live as someone who actually has been made alive and that you live out the purpose that God has given you. And if you are someone, though, that is unsure of your faith tonight or salvation, and you're not sure if you've placed your faith in Christ through repentance, in the amazing grace in which God has saved us through the finished work of Christ on the cross, my charge for you is may tonight be the night that you realize your need for a Savior and you surrender to God and you allow him to make you alive tonight. And if you need help with that, talk to your life group leader, talk to me, talk to Sam, Bianca, and we can help you walk through that process so that you can get to know this amazing God who has such a compassionate heart that he wants all people to come to true repentance and redemption and be made alive. I want to end with this benediction. It's kind of funny because last week, During uh, third Monday, uh, Andrew came up and he said, I'm going to give you a benediction from Hebrews 13. And I was like, I already wrote the sermon. Guess what? That's what I'm ending with. So you get the same benediction two weeks in a row. But I really did think this was a fitting way to end uh, this section of Ephesians chapter 2. So Ephesians 13, 20 through 21 says this. Now... May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have an amazing, compassionate heart that wants to just pour out your rich mercy, your great love. And then by your grace that is so immeasurable, you have made us alive in you if we have put our faith in you. God, I ask that you would help us to live out the purposes that you have for our lives that we would represent you to the world around us and that they would see your kindness, that they would see this mercy and love and grace through the way we live. God, that you would continually remind us that this is not our own doing, that this is only through you, and that we would walk in the path that you have prepared for us for your glory and your honor, and we thank you that our hope is secure in you. God, you are great, and we love you, and we just ask that you would continue to use us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.